Blog Talk Radio. On top of the state house, no doubt, baby. You know how we do, cause every time that we rhyme, we shine just like the crew. Okay, all the way from Mass out to Harvard Square, it's clear the spirit of the city's everywhere. Hello, Blog Talk listeners. Tom Hayes on a Sunday night, and this is a big treat for me because this show just came on. In the last couple of hours, I'm lucky enough to have Brian Culkin on the line, filmmaker and uh, raconteur, man extraordinaire, man of many, many talents. And we're celebrating uh, this month, right, uh, Brian? Because your film was released uh, and premiered in Boston at what, Northeastern University. Yes, yes, it was. Uh, we showed it for the first time to about 600 people at uh, Northeastern University at the beautiful Blackman Auditorium, which is on their campus, their amphitheater on their campus. And uh, that was about a month ago. And um, we're going to do a couple more showings. We're going to do one on, at Wentworth uh, Institute, Institute of Technology on April 2nd, and then one just in the Tobin Community Center for you know, local Mission Hill people. And then after that, it will be submitted into some, some specific um, international film festivals. So we really won't be doing yeah. a lot of showings in the, in the intermediary while that process is going on. But yeah, no, just just to you know have it premiered for the first time at Northeastern was was great, you know, especially because Northeastern's, you know, essentially in Mission Hill, or at least a portion a portion of their campus is in Mission Hill. Um, oh yeah, I mean it's you know it's just a stone's throw literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it was it was fantastic, and you know Blackman holds about 900 people, and you know the whole first floor of the auditorium was essentially full. So there was about 600 oh. people there. It was uh, it was. It was a pretty special night. What kind of celebrities showed up? Did some uh, basketball luminaries? You know, there weren't many because it's kind of like right in the middle of the basketball season. Um, I had talked with a couple yeah. of Celtics who I'm, who I'm friendly with, and they were going to come, but they never made it. Um, you know, Ray Flynn was there, former mayor of Boston. Uh, oh, Buck great. The Boston Herald was there. So there, there, there were some, some, you know, some people there that were of note. But um, I think the main, the great part about it is that the just the just the people themselves from Mission Hill. I mean, it was really awesome to be in a space with them um, and them to really respond so positively to someone documenting um, their history. You know, which is which is a really wow. fascinating history in and of itself. Uh, the whole story of of Mission Hill and public housing in Boston in general. I mean, it's just a it is a it is a truly remarkable story. And I think um, you know we. 
the film that I directed, which does take into account absolutely some of the the macro, you know, socio-political forces that came into helping to shape both the project of Mission Hill and the subset of the basketball culture. But, I mean, you know, we, we focus in terms of basketball on kind of a very small part of the story in terms of the whole narrative of, of Mission Hill and public housing. But on the, other, on the other side of things, basketball was very important to Mission Hill at one point in its development. So um, maybe, maybe not that small after all. Um, but it was great. I mean, it, it, it really was a, a great night. And, and um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm very pleased with the results and looking forward to this film being seen um, more widely. There's no doubt about well, I it. I can't think of, you know, first of all, the numbers, 600 people, that's a, you know, that's a great representation. I mean, a great showing. I mean, for you to, you know, to actually have people leave their homes and, you know, come out, especially in this winter's been so brutal, <laughs> you know. Uh, it, you know, it wasn't like we were doing this in, in a beautiful, you know, May or something like that. And, um and, and how did you, well, just just a little bit on the marketing side, because I think you're in a, you know, from just observing you on Facebook and everything else, you've really got a handle on the whole uh, marketing aspect of this thing. How did you, you know, how did you reach out? How did you get that kind of response? That's, that's actually a, an interesting comment in of itself. Um, I think, well, the first thing is the, the real marketing of the film is really starting now in terms of, you know, the actions that I'm going to take specifically to have this film um, seen and, 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 and known about. But in, in terms of what I did um, in building up to the, sh- the, the first showing was really a, a truly like a grassroots. I mean, the people at Mission Hill that, let's say, liked the Facebook page, I went out of my way to kind of get to know a lot of people that were in the Mission Hill community that I, that I, that I did not interview for the film but were interested in what I was doing. And I really, for me, just went out of my way just to um, talk to people, get to know people. Um, and even if it was over, a, let's say, a digital platform like Facebook, I really tried to make myself available to anybody who had questions and, and tried to build a real community because my theory of this film and life and, and basketball certainly is that players or filmmakers or anyone that does anything, they, ne- they, they never do it themselves. And when, let's say, a filmmaker gets credit, hypothetically, let's say, in the mission myself, it's actually not true because, you know, there's so many people um, that go into the whole process, including the people that come to see it, you know. So there's a real ecology built around anything in life, anything creative. So the response, I mean, the, the, the Facebook activity on the mission page is just astounding. I mean, so many comments on every post and likes and, you know, people really got into the film, and I think that's because... I really wanted to make it almost like an open source type of situation where I would accept feedback and, and be open to people's ideas and, and really try to make it um, about them versus about me, you know? So, um, well, I think, I think that works. What, what, what's evident is that you have really, instead of, <clears throat> I'm an entertainer and uh, I have a different approach than a lot of other, I'm a stand-up comedian and I have a different approach. I, uh, I like to create an event you know, I don't just get up and I, you know, do my monologue. Um, you know, I try to build a bridge. I do what they call crowd work. And what you've done here, um, not only through the film, but in the fact that you aired this at Northeastern in the community and you got that kind of thing, but even what you're talking about, you, you, you have a dialogue. You've created a dialogue here, which I think is, 
one of the main um, facets of this this project, which is really admirable. I think so, and I think that has a lot to do with just the fact that I'm I'm really passionate about this project. I'm I'm really passionate about um, the history. I mean, I think public housing in in the country in Boston has a very um, shaky future. You know, look to, to say that at the least. But I think that the history of public housing is is amazing. Um, you know, my dad was born in, in the projects in South Boston. My my grandparents lived in. I mean, the projects were home to so many people in the city. It's incredible. Um, mm-hmm. it, it's almost like everyone's grandfather at one point lived in the projects in like the 40s and 50s. And right. I think that 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 history of, of being kind of a landing space for so many people, whether it was let's say uh, first generation Irish immigrants in the 40s when it was first built. And then in the 60s, when the, uh, during the black migration after World War II, when so many of, let's say, Mission Hill, which became a predominantly black, a predominantly black project by, let's say, 67, 68, um, you know, that was kind of the, the migrant experience of African Americans transitioning from the south to the north in the post-war decades. So it really has been like a landing, a, a touchdown place for a lot of families. And there's tremendous history, there's tremendous stories, there's tremendous talent, tremendous talent that came out of these projects in a variety of fields. And there's also, of course, a tremendous amount of wasted talent. There's a tremendous amount of people that never made it and and, and had talent. And, you know, I think that has to do with a lot with just the concentration of people. You know, when you concentrate people in an area, you build up a spirit of competition, you build up a spirit of creativity, you build up a spirit of uh, people trying to, um, you know, one-up each other, for lack of a better term. And that builds yeah. up uh, a base of talent, a base of uh, innovation, a base of um, people doing things in new ways. And, you know, I mean, hip-hop music, basketball, I mean, you can name a lot of things in terms of the black experience in public housing that resulted um, from that concentration of people and talent. So I, I am very passionate about... Um, and it's it's weird because when I started this film, it was really a story about two brothers, and it's definitely evolved into a much wider scope. And I, and I didn't really think that in terms of myself, um, I, I would have this real interest in in, in the history of, of public housing in Boston, but I, I, I have developed that. And I think that, at least for me, it feels in my own, um, in my own sense of who I am, it feels very authentic, this interest. And I think other people can see that, and that's why there's a response to the film. That's just my own. Sure. Well, I think in, in Tum, it, you know, there was there's a certain stigma that was always associated with somebody who came from the projects. And mm-hmm. I think what you've done is you've taken, um, you know, with every, you know, that whole yin yang thing that we both sometimes talk about, you know, for for what looks like a, a negative or a liability. There, uh, out of that came this amazing uh, asset or, you know, uh, positive thing of the, this phenomenal talent burgeoning on the scene and making an influence on international, national and international basketball. Mm, oh, yeah. I mean, Mission Hill, I mean, is really almost a, a sociological miracle in terms of basketball. I mean, nine NBA players that were either drafted or played in the NBA in, let's say, a 30-year window, um, it's 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 amazing, and there's no doubt about it that um, as the projects evolve from their initial intention, their initial um, population, 
it did evolve into a place that was tremendously stigmatized for reasons, we should say, that weren't necessarily formed from the projects themselves. They were formed from a variety of factors that were happening in the overall economic picture of, the, of America. They were happening in um, the changing dynamics of cities in general. They were, um, and I think also, too, a lot of people don't talk about this, but I think that just the, the architectural design of public housing was such a, a failure waiting to happen. Um, you know, those, those brick buildings totally isolated from the rest of the community, it really bred right. a sense of, of differentness. It bred, it bred yep. a sense of, yep. of, of, of isolation. And that had a lot to do with it. I mean, when they were first built, they were looked upon as almost fancy in a way. You know, I don't know if they were fancy, but they, they were definitely a step up from a lot of the cold water flats and a lot of the, you know, quote-unquote tenements that people were living in. Um, so, but that wore off pretty quickly, and, and, and by the 60s, they, they were not what they were um, in the 40s and 50s, and that lack of maintenance, the, and then just the architectural um, design of the projects themselves contributed to um, the devastating deindustrialization of the city itself, which really uh, put people in public housing and trapped them there. Um, for a variety of other reasons as well. So, yes, that stigma by the 90s was, was definitely intense. It was definitely potentially even, uh, you know, there, there's a truth, uh, at least a somewhat truth to, to every stigma. So, I mean, Mission Hill in the 80s and 90s was not a pretty place. There's no doubt about that. And, and anyone that lived there would, would, would tell you the same thing. It, it was a dangerous place. Um, but, I mean, you know, Pruitt, Igo in St. Louis, Robert Taylor in Chicago, I mean, those places were just probably worse than Mission Hill. I mean, if the, this was a national issue because public housing was a federal program. So you, you, there's, a, there's tremendous parallels between all of cities' public housing, tremendous, just like there is parallels between, let's say, Mission Hill and Orchard Park or Columbia Point and D Street. I mean, these things are all running um, along certain trajectories that can inform and um, give insight into each other's stories. Yeah, and I think it's what you saw. You're right because I, you know, I grew up in Roxbury and uh, went to Mission High, and you know, passed through the projects. Not, you know, not inside the projects, but alongside, you know, every day going back and forth. And you know, my cousins lived in uh, Franklin Field and also in Columbia Point, and I can just remember going at the Columbia Point just being as bad as as bad as the streets were in Roxbury. We, you know, we lived in the you know, what were previously semi, almost semi-mansions, you know, I mean, they were just these beautiful stained glass, beautiful, uh, well-appointed homes, but then to go into the projects, I mean, I was just horrified at what I would witness while I was there, and just, I mean, it almost had a prison, um, you know, with the colors with inside, there was the greens and the grays, and, you know, there was a, there was a, a, an absence of color, and I was just well, they again. Were, they were warehouses for people. That's that's really what they developed yeah. into. They, they they developed into human warehouses, and they were cut off uh, totally from uh, the economic and social life of the city. And they were yeah. relegated to people who had you know were on welfare and and had no um, no stable income. So I think calling it a prison isn't that far off. Um, yep. It's as close to prison as you can get when you're let's say free. 
quote unquote. Right. So yeah. Right. Yeah. But again, free only, free only in the sense of the word, because they were totally trapped uh, economically and socially and aspirationally. I mean, it was just um, without the role models outside of there. And and you know what what you've done with the film is you show that those people that did break out broke out through sports. And I mean, did you find any other parallels and anything else with music or? Or anything else while you were doing the film? Yes, I think less so in Boston, but I think absolutely in New York City there was a tremendous amount of, um, you know, hip hop culture, which initially developed in the Bronx, but certainly moved into Manhattan and, and Brooklyn. But I mean, you know, Jay Z, Biggie Small. I mean, Biggie Small. I don't think was in the projects, but Jay Z, who might be the the most successful, the most commercially successful hip hop artist of all time. I mean, he's from public housing in Brooklyn. So mm-hmm. there were parallels, absolutely, between... I think what it was, it was anything that was creative, and it was anything that was um, decentralized. You know, basketball is an interesting sport in the sense that it really has all these creative potentialities that are innate to the game. I mean, when you think of basketball, let's say in the early 20th century, when James Naismith invented it in Springfield, I mean, you know, you look at these guys, and, and you know, the, the shorts are up to their crotch and they're playing in peach baskets and then, and then, and then you fast forward to let's say you know the mid-1980s on a playground in Harlem I mean the, the transformation of the game in, in 80 years is astounding I mean absolutely astounding and that has a lot to do with I think just the, the nature of basketball in and of itself is that it really allows for tremendous creativity it allows for tremendous um, innovation on the part of the individual. So I think what, when basketball started to become associated as an urban game in the post-war decades, and even associated with public housing, I mean, basketball was really like the game of the projects because it was so economically accessible. You, you really saw a dramatic shift of basketball, let's say from the 50s. I mean, even from the 50s, when you see Bob Cousy dribbling around with one hand to let's say the 80s with magic, with no look passes and Isaiah Thomas and so on and so forth, there was a tremendous transformation of the game, and a lot of that took place on playgrounds, you know, in cities, and it and it worked its way up into the NBA. So, I think that anything that really, and that's the other thing too. I mean, basketball now, the whole game itself. I mean, it's it's Tom. I mean, it is fascinating now. They are hiring NBA teams now they hire computer scientists to be their scouts. I mean, the game has the, the level of um, quantification and the corporatization of basketball from um, the NBA down to, you know, 10-year-old 10-year, 10 AAU tournaments. It's unbelievable. So a lot of that creativity well, you know, I mean, that... Right. Well, you saw, I mean, look at what uh, John Henry did with uh, quantification with the Red Sox. Yeah, and and I don't know if I like. I mean, I can see. I'm, you know, it's. I think that it it might be good, let's say, for a team in some respects. But I think there's a tremendous social critique that you can make against that because when you start quantifying mathematically athletes almost exclusively, and you take away any type of let's call it a humanistic approach, just a normal person watching talent and measuring these abstract qualities like heart and hustle and you know, just tenaciousness, all, all these qualities you would, you would, that you really, you really can't quantify, let's say. It really dehumanizes the game. 
you know, it really does. It makes it, and it's purely for uh, market forces. There's nothing to do with it. It's really about money. It's really about reducing the game. Well, that's right. To, uh, exactly. To, to, to flows of capital. But the, but the really interesting thing is, though, is this is really, this is really, see, basketball, let's say in the 60s and 70s, it was a bottom-up game. It started at the bottom on the playground, and it worked, away, it, it worked its way up to the NBA. Today, it's the exact opposite. It's a top-down game. Where if you're, let's say you're good at basketball and you're nine years old and you live in, like, you know, rural Oklahoma, you are going to be on mm-hmm. the radar screens of every major college scout in the country. So it, it, right. it has reversed itself from a bottom-up game to a top-down game. And when, you, when it starts to be distributed through channels of power, which it is now, the game really suffers. And maybe, you know, it depends on how you view the game. I mean, I view the game as, or any game, as a methodology for a person to develop creativity, self-discovery, uh, learn about teamwork, and learn about, you know, being a human being. And I think that's really being lost on kids today. It, and it's, it's super sad. I mean, when, when you see kids today playing sports, it's all about, I mean, from the time they're like six on, it's about like organized competitive things and just the, 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 the idea of going out and being creative and making up games with the ball. I mean, it's, it's really, it's disappearing. And I think that was one of the brilliant things about basketball, let's say in the 60s and 70s and 80s in cities, it was that um, that unbelievable potential for creativity, and and really just being an artist. I mean, they, I mean, those streetball legends in New York City in the '80s or Mission Hill, they they were like Picasso, they were like a Manet. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? They, they they were breaking through to the other side um, using basketball, and and it really had a transcendent quality to it. And that, I mean, are you actually? That, I mean, you really actually seen that 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 noticeable a decline in the creative creative side of this, or? I mean, I think you don't see it necessarily. What I think what's happening, it's becoming a totally elite type of situation where you're marked when you're nine years old or ten years old, and it kind of you, mm-hmm. you keep going up. Where the distribution mm-hmm. of potential, it's much more concentrated now. So, for instance, you know, um, I can't think of the guy's name for the Clippers, Blake, um, whatever his name is. You know. He has like a 50-inch vertical jump. He's six foot ten. He's just a tremendous athlete. I mean, yes, he is no doubt an evolution of basketball. I mean, he is the new breed, let's say, of a player that wasn't even around in the 80s or 90s. I mean, he's he's really a, right. a physical marvel. But I think what I'm saying is the critique, the critique that I'm making about basketball isn't necessarily that players aren't getting better. It's that the structure of the game itself, it's becoming reducible, it's becoming quantifiable, it's becoming totally... It's becoming totally connected to advertising and power. And I think, yep, yep. There, I, and, and I, and I think for, for, for a human being, that should be worrisome or troublesome, because if it keeps getting like that, if, if that trajectory or arc keeps on the way it is, then it's going to be kind of scary in 50 years where professional sports are going to be. That's all I'm saying. I mean, you, I mean, the fact that basketball, the fact that professional sports teams are now hiring almost exclusively computer scientists to do their scouting and to develop game mm-hmm. plans and to do all these things, I mean, mm-hmm. that should be a big heads up to people that we are, mm-hmm. you know, the, the traditional definitions of what it is to be human is kind of, you know, slowly 
going somewhere else, you know? And, and I think that nobody is talking about this at all, nobody. And, 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 and the really scary thing is it's almost in a way um, looked upon as a good thing, you know? It, it, it's looked upon as an innovation, and, and I think it's something – I mean, maybe it is in a way – but I think there's also tremendous. Well, right. I, I mean, you can't. It's hard to argue against the efficacy of it when you see <laughs> when you see what John Henry. You know, I mean, that's what Henry. How he made his fortune was, you know, yeah. introducing, you know, metrics to the stock market, and you know, well, um, exactly. Well, that, well, that's the whole point. Is that is that players are now not humans. They're they're commodities right. to be traded and tracked and tagged yeah. and yeah. monitored yeah. and quantified. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. that's exactly the point you made: is that he's he's using principles that he made billions of dollars in the bond market and applying those to human beings, to living subjects, yep. and and yep. that I mean that's almost comical in a way, you know. So oh, I think that you know to me to, whatever I mean to me it's people are going to do what people are going to do, but I just think there's there's critique to be made about that. That's all I'm saying, you know. Right, and you're saying that all across the board, whether it's basketball, whether it's uh, baseball or football, you know, you're seeing well, that I mean, all across. I'm bringing that. that up, I think, because the way it relates to, to the Mission Hill story is that, you know, the, the portion of our film towards the end of the film um, deals specifically with Mission Hill and its current form, its current state in relationship to its basketball. And basketball in Mission Hill has been decimated over the past, let's say, 15 years. I mean, just wiped mm-hmm. out 10 years. It's, been, it's, it's gone to the point where, I mean, it does exist, but it, it is a fraction of what it was. So that is, and, and, and I think that's happening for very different reasons of what I was um, um, referring to about the quantification and so on and so forth of the NBA. But it's related in a sense because gentrification, which is the primary driving force for right. the the, the eradication of basketball Mission Hill is very much related in, in, in a way to quantification and reducibility in the market and all these things. So I think... Well, I mean, I think look, I, I mean, know, I'm in Roxbury. I'm in Roxbury. I mean, you were, I saw that you were recently because you were at BNN TV on uh, it's about the arts. Um, you know, I saw that post on Facebook and I'm, you know, I took a couple of courses recently at BNN, and, you know, it's right in Eggleston Square and, you know, not far from Mission. And, yeah. you know, it was, for me, it's a journey back to maybe within two miles of where I grew up. And as I drive through, you know, I'm, I'm just trying to put the, together, you know, you know, the cause and effect of this is that, well, first of all, what's happened to the projects that, that is different? I mean, is it because... You know, when you go through Roxbury now, Roxbury doesn't look anything like it did when I was there as a kid. I mean, there was just, I mean, structurally, the houses, at least from the outside, what they did throughout that whole area is put in really some some really eye-catching and, you know, really modern type of housing. Um, you know, it's structurally, they went in, so whoever did that, whatever the plan, the urban planning was, was a total transformation of, you know, slums and, you know, independent houses to, even though they, they look, you know, kind of like, uh, you know, there's a uniformity to them, but, yeah. you know, the coloring and everything else, hugely, I mean, huge improvement over over what was previously existed. And so, yeah, the majority of people aren't living 
in the projects anymore in Roxbury, right? Well, Is, well I mean, that's, you know, there, there are definitely still people in the projects. I mean, Mission Hill specifically, M- Mission Hill was always two projects, right? It was Mission Main and the Extension, which was separated by Parker Street. Um, Mission Main is, is not even managed anymore by the Boston Housing Authority. It's managed by an outside private agency. Um, Mission Extension is still under the, the, um, the direction of the, the BHA. But um, there are people there. There's no doubt about it. But I think there, there are questions at least about its possible future, um, maybe in 20, 30 years, because that real estate in Mission Hill, I mean, it's really – you really can't get much better in terms of real estate. So there, there, there probably is tremendous pressure on a place like Mission Hill to maintain its autonomy um, because you have you know, major institutions around there that have tremendous power and influence, and you have um, just the, the normal flows of, 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 of a gentrifying Boston that are around it as two that aren't even connected to the institutions that are there. So... I think it's there. Um, I think it's there. But, but what, is, what has really happened in Mission Hill is, is the breakdown of the community. See, like, what you have in Mission yep. Hill now is you have basically, like, strangers living next to each other. Yep. Um, yep. There is some community life there. But from what I've been told, talking with people in yep. Mission Hill, is that the, the, the community itself, like, yep. a, the, the unified community has been essentially disbanded. Yep. People have moved out to Randolph yep. or Lowell or New Bedford or Springfield. And, and you have basically yep. strangers living together. And, of course, when you have strangers living together, it's, it's much easier to kind of, you know, you know, like a community unified is much easier. It's much harder to, to tell them what to do than a bunch of strangers living together. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's tough to say, you know. Um, and, again, the, the projects are owned by the federal government. It's, it's, it's not a Boston thing, you know. So I don't think mm-hmm. that um, – the city of Boston in terms of Mission Hill. I, I, actually, I actually don't know the full answer to that in terms of who would call the shots. But they are there now. There are people living there. But basketball itself is certainly um, not nearly in, a, in, a, in the elevation in terms of its social status that it was um, 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago. Not even close. Right. Well, John Russell, in one of the previous programs, I you know, but I see it as a real time to jump in with this now is uh, Malcolm Gadwell's book, David and Goliath. I don't know, did we discuss that previously? Yeah, that yeah, we, we did actually. We yeah, talked about that one. I tenet, did read that book. Yeah, right, his tenet is basically that adversity, unlike what we're used to in the model of success, where we think that those who are the privileged have a better shot at turning out successful because they have access to better schools, better upbringing, better breeding, you know, et cetera, and exposure to, to, you know, international life and et cetera, and, you know, have all the tools, you know, whether they're computers or cell phones or whatever, or the schools themselves, that the real um, champions are the people who come out of the adversity. You know, and what what we look at as weaknesses, they're really not weaknesses. I mean, he talks, he starts off the the whole discussion about the, David and Goliath, that David was by no means the underdog in that situation. In fact, he had all of the power because he had the, uh, you know, that sling. I mean, basically he was as as proficient as a marksman with a rifle. And, you know, his intention wasn't ever even to get close. But what looks 
you know, throughout history is, oh, he was a small guy, he was at a big disadvantage. Yeah, yeah. Turns out. So, so that was a very those, interesting take on that, that, you know, Gladwell essentially stated that when Goliath saw David walking out, he should have ran for it, you know, and, and the way the story is always presented yeah. in, in the literature of the Bible and how it's even presented verbally by pastors is always David was this kind of, you know, weak, younger brother yeah. um, who kind of came out and just got lucky. When, when in actuality, he was... Uh, he was, he was he a had sniper. the advantage from the beginning. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so, he was a sniper. No, there's definitely parallels in terms of in terms of, you know in terms of that with, with, with projects. But um, the question that I, I really think that one of the reasons why I think that this film does have the possibility to reach a national audience is for that question that I posed at the end. Because um, I think what you're seeing in Mission Hill is definitely related and connected to what's happening in a lot of other cities, you know, as, as, um, as the cities undergo this transformation, and, and they are going through transformations. I mean, Manhattan is just incredible, you know, what's happening there, and Washington, D.C., possibly the most intense, um, Baltimore, Philadelphia. I mean, you're really seeing cities um, reverse their meaning, re- reverse their demographic, reverse... Um, the points of privilege and what you're having because basketball is a, usually is at least in a quote-unquote underdog sport and because right. let's say um, in the decades after World War II as the suburbs were growing and the cities were emptying out all the underdogs lived in the city right all the right. underdogs were in the middle of the city and that's where basketball right. was and you have now um, the exact reversal of that process where the underdogs are being pushed to the, um, the edges of the metropolis, the edges of the city, and the power is residing in the city. And power in basketball, at least youth basketball, at least the old model of basketball did not exist. It existed on the fringes. It existed uh, by people making exits from power and developing their own style and, and creativity. So I think that's um, what you see happening and, and, you know, I'm telling you right now, basketball has an extraordinarily f- limited relationship with cities of the future. It really does. I, I think basketball right. um, is – Well, let's even the, look at the superstars. Well, even, you know, I mean, let's even look at the superstars today. I mean, the people who made it out of the cities, they, they have almost – I mean, some of them try to go back and try to help. But they transcend into a lifestyle that has nothing to do with what they. I mean, it's just these are these are multimillionaires. Yeah, you know? I mean, that's and, a very very small percentage of the of the people that make it. But yeah, there's no doubt about it. Um, and but I think when you really look at the kids now playing, like when you look at let's say the McDonald's All American team, what you what you're seeing is you you used to see kids, let's say in the 80s and 90s most of the team was from big cities. You don't see that now. Most of the kids are from North Carolina, from Texas, from Tennessee. Right, right, they're, right, they're, right. They're, out, they're out of the city. So you right. really are looking at a kind of a de-urbanization of the game of basketball. And, and, I, and, and I would hope that would be concerning to some people. You know, I mean, for me, I'm, I mean, I think this is something that people should real. I mean, people should realize this is happening. You know, I mean, I don't even know if people realize this is happening. But, I mean, basketball... 
Right. Well, I because think what you're saying. The, I mean, the, the, image is, the, black, the, the image of the black kid in the ghetto is so ingrained into the into the collective consciousness of America that we can't imagine that it's not like that anymore. But it's really right. not like that anymore. You know, exactly. because because the black ghetto is being totally pushed out of the city. It doesn't really exist right. in the city in the way it did, and it's certainly not going to exist the way it did in let's say twenty, thirty years. So. Right. So that, that archetypal form, you know, the, the black kid on, on the playground playing basketball, um, it, it's, 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 you know, some people would say, oh, that's a stereotype. I mean, I, I actually think it's kind of beautiful because that's, that, that's a beautiful image to me. Um, that image um, is, is not coinciding with the current narrative of, of urbanity in America. And the, the really amazing thing, though, is because the, pre, the prior image, it's so ingrained into our consciousness of what an inner city is and how an inner city should be and what it should look like that we can't even fathom the fact that that is not, those two points aren't coordinating anymore. So that's one of the things that's hopeful to me about this film. People see it, at least get a conversation going about that, and, and, you know, yeah, I mean, use basketball. I mean, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting. When, when people make critiques about gentrification and what it does to people, they don't usually really use sports or use sports as a point of uh, fighting back, let's say, or, or, or making some kind of counterpoint to what gentrification offers. But I, I think it's a great thing to, 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 for people to at least observe is the fact that um, when, let's say, a place like Mission Hill becomes gentrified, it, does, it loses... Let's say something like the basketball culture, because the basketball culture is has sets of relations and points well, of um, at, right. But I mean, look at look at you know. I live in Southie now, and look at what's happening to South Boston. South Boston used to be uh, one of a me- mega center of of uh, hockey talent. I mean, yeah, the, the kids that you, the, right. You, could write almost a very similar script for Mission Hill and basketball right. in South Boston hockey. There's, there's no doubt about it. There's, there's tons of parallels. Um, there's, there's, there's no question. There's a tremendous amount of parallels that run between those two youth sport narratives. And from what I understand, I mean, I'm not too intimately connected with the South Boston hockey uh, community, but from what I understand, it is, it, it, it is much reduced from what it used to be and oh, in the process of reducing further. And it's, it's, I'll use your word, it's a decimation. It just doesn't, yeah. the concentration yeah. of it, the, the enthusiasm, the energy. And, you know, you're absolutely right. I mean, the, the ramifications of the dialogue that you're opening up don't, don't only apply, I mean, as you jump from one facet of it to another. So you're taking the inner city and the, all the oppression and all the adversity that existed in that little area and concentrated a bunch of kids in, into the thing that germinated this incredible explosion of talents, and the same thing happened in South Boston. I mean, here's he's got you know virtually on a, almost on the same socioeconomic structure and stratus, you had all of these white kids who really didn't have access to what the kids in the suburbs had, and then all of a sudden hockey came in in the programs, and then there's this explosion of. Um, talent that fed to the NHL and everything else, but oh, yeah. the whole city, it, the whole city. It's not just. I mean, as you go, as you really review this from a bird's eye view, it's the whole city is suffering from this gentrification and strangers moving in 
in a lack of community. They're on virtually kids. The kids are almost non-existent in Boston now. Yeah, you know, except you know, for certain neighborhoods. You know, yeah, it's, it's 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 it's. I have you know, I'm, I'm in the process of developing, you know, my my total view in this, and I'm very intimate in terms of Mission Hill because of the research I've done and and how I've been in that neighborhood for the past year. Um, you know, developing relationships and kind of understanding the landscape of what's going on there. So I, I can't speak for you know other, but it, it, I think you 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 are definitely um, from what I understand that that is kind of what's happening um, in terms of the youth sport culture in urban America, not just Boston. That that it is being exported out of the city into the the, the outer edges or the suburbs or you know places like Lowell or where, wherever they go. Um, yeah, I think I think that is what's happening. No doubt about it. Yeah, and you know, and you're right. And it's so, who are the kids now? It, it's the suburban kids who have the access to the ice time, to the equipment, to the coaches, to everything else. It's well, I think about my I think about my hometown right now, Braintree. I mean, they won the they they lost in the state finals of the hockey tournament. They won the girls' basketball state championship. I mean, there are so many families from South Boston and Dorchester that are moving yeah. to Braintree right now, it, there's going to be a tr- – Braintree is going to have just – I mean, and Braintree's always had good sports, but, I mean, I'm, I, I think in 10 years they're going to be dominating because so many of these families that have left South Boston that have strong connections and, and uh, relations around youth sports are coming into places like Braintree, and there's just, there's just talent there now. There's just talent, and the talent's developed, and the talent is nurtured and, and, and so on and so forth. Well, let's talk, too, a little bit about, I think maybe we touched on the last one, Boston itself, I mean, just both black and white uh, has, I mean, it's a microcosm of an amazing energy. I mean, I mean, this is why you see so many films and so many, um, whether it's TV shows or whether it's, it's, you know, the Goodwill Hunting or the town or uh, gone Baby Gone or whatever. There's a culture that, of Boston is, I mean, we saw this with Boston Strong and the reaction that, you know, when we got hit by this thing and, and around the, the country, you know, all of the, whether it was, the you know, John Stewart or, you know, um, Steve, I forget his last name, but, you know, um, they all said, are you crazy? I mean, these are not the people that you mess with. You know, oh, Boston yeah. has a toughness. Boston has a toughness that is is unique. I mean, there isn't yeah. another area in the country or the world that has this crazy mix of just being able to deal with adversity. And you know, that, I mean, it's, and it's a tiny town compared to you know, five hundred thousand compared to what twenty million or something from New York, and we're their their number one nemesis. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, you know, and um, you know, so. It, 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 I think what you're seeing there was not only Roxbury and, and Mission Hill in, in specifically, but this whole Boston toughness. Um, you know, this is where, you know, the, the birthplace of the nation, you know, the Athens of America, the, you know, the, the revolutionaries. And I think that still permeates just as much as the puritanical aspect of Boston. But I, I totally think you're onto something because it gets, the gentrification is dangerous, I think, because we're losing that edge. We're losing that ethnicity. We're losing – it's becoming, you know, it's just well, yeah, becoming no, watered down. I mean, that, that's why when you were just saying that about the toughness in Boston, I was, I was kind of cringing a little bit because, I mean, 
it, it's almost more like a marketing slogan now than it is actually real. You know what I mean? It's, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's almost like, uh, like, um, like, like it's kind of like an advertising um, mechanism to get people to. Right. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's, it's lacking. I agree. You know, it's, it's yeah, I agree. It's oh yeah, it's, and, I and um, right. I think well, this whole new right, this whole new toughness is you know, totally marketing. It's not yeah. that nitty gritty. Yeah. Well, of course not. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, but I mean, you know, that's that's part of what I was saying is, you know, the, you know, yeah, I mean, I think the the, the economy that we're that we're part of, at least in America, which is has been a you know a deindustrialized country that is you know turning in almost to an exclusively digital economy. I mean, the basic mechanism of a digital economy is advertising and marketing. I mean, there there right. there, there are services being created in abstract clouds that provide a variety of um, technological infrastructure or services or, or, or softwares. Um, so, of course, when you're creating things in an abstract place like the virtual, then you need, a, you need a good advertising and marketing campaign to create images that can link with our neurological uh, makeup that will make us want to spend money. <laughs> I mean, so advertising and marketing is so related to gentrification you know, as is quantification, um, that it creates a lack of authenticity. It creates a lack Absolutely. of real human connection. And I don't necessarily think it's like anyone's fault. I think that's part of the overall matrix that we're in right now in the fact that yep. our entire economy is based on um, selling each other with slogans and images. So... Mm-hmm. Um, and what that does, of course, is that um, authenticity suffers. So because I know all that stuff, um, it was great to see in terms of the mission the real response to the real authentic- the authenticity of it, the, the, the uncompromising message of the film. These are all things, at least for me, um, that I was really happy with. You know, the fact that um, the quote-unquote marketing that I did for the film was 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 really you know person to person. Um, it was uh, it was real. It was it was never um, you know it's funny. I thought a lot about this in terms of making money on this film, and uh, obviously I mean I, I am a filmmaker. It, that is something that I would like to do, but it's really my it, it is and this almost sounds crazy in a in a world that's totally um, controlled by market relationships. But it's not the most important thing to me. You know, if I had a chance to sell this film for a million dollars to, let's say, a, a Fox Sports that would totally change things or a little tiny distribution company that would pay me, let's say, $100,000 that would keep – there's no question I would sell it for $100,000. I wouldn't even think twice right. about it because I think right. that would, that's more important to me than – Of course it you know, cause then, Because then what you do is you open yourself up to, you know, you know keeping your integrity is kind of a tricky thing. Once you – I mean, and, you know, people make mistakes and they can get it back, no doubt about it. Um, I've made mistakes in my life where I've, I've, I've lost my integrity, but I've, I've, I have it back now. And, and I think that, um, you know, when, when you do something, when you sell out, you open yourself up to do it again and again and again. And that's really something that I'm not interested in doing, at least with the, the films that I'm making right now, the, 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 the three or four films that I'm working on right now. I, I hope to keep them, um, the spirit of them very authentic. And I, and, I, I'm, and I trust people will see that when they watch the films. 
Well, I think what you've done here is you've hit on, you, you're right. You, this may be, you've probably encapsulated uh, um, what will soon be a relic. In other words, that oh, those no, days are no gone. no question about it. No, I mean, this is a and, social artifact. There's no question about it. Exactly. This, I mean, this, exactly. I mean the, the mission film is almost like watching a museum. I mean, it's, yep. it's literally like going into a museum and watching yep. something that doesn't exist anymore. You know, and I, and I think like when people were in the theater, it was all, it was very much like watching non-reality, even though it is really reality. You know what I mean? Because we because the world we live in is so disconnected from you know human beings being messy and and you know messing their lives up and 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 doing things that human beings do. You know, um, we live in such a sterile. Like, like we talked about earlier, quantified, tracked world that runs on, on slogans and, and images. So it, it is... Yeah, I mean, just walk around, walk around Boston during the winter and see how many North Face jackets are out there. Yeah, you know, and, you know, <laughs> I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with North Face. I, I think there's something wrong with lack of authenticity, you know? So, I mean, people, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah. So, I mean, exactly. You, you I mean, definitely be authentic with, with the North Face on, you know? But yeah, you but I mean, a, look at everybody. How, how can everybody be wearing the same? No, no, that's, that's a whole different critique that you're posing. But I, I definitely get what you're saying. I definitely get what you're saying. Yeah. But no, it, you, you absolutely nailed it on the head. The mission, in many ways, it, it is like going to a museum and saying, "Oh my God, real people." You know what I mean? Like people. You know what I mean? So it, it is a interesting experience, um, no doubt. And I think as time progresses, it will have that feeling. That, that social artifact feeling even more and more intense as, as time goes on. Um, so, and and I'm, I'm very happy that I could capture it, or at least try to capture it. Um, and from what I've been told by people from Mission Hill, young, old, that I did, in fact, do that. So that was a great feeling for me to be told. Well, that. and the thing that's been, the word that's been in my mind this whole time listening to you is that, I think you you grabbed something that was legendary. I mean, you grabbed the legend. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I mean, Mission Hill is is legendary. There's no doubt about it. It's a it's a it's a famous and infamous place, and um, I have tremendous love in my heart for Mission Hill projects. Um, the people, the history, the buildings. It's just a great place, and um, it, it it's really tucked away now. I mean, you. you it, it's tucked away, and you know, it's it's just it's 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 disappearing, even though it's still there. If that makes any sense, right? Um, totally, it's, because it's lost. It's it's it's, well, it's, it's lost fading away into the future, you know. Right. And it's the other thing too that I, I think is really funny about Mission Hill is that, and not just the projects, Mission Hill, and even South Boston. So, I mean, these places used to they used to be places where you were from. Now they're places yep. where you go. Now they're places where you go to. You know I mean, it's such yep. a big difference. No one's from yep. Mission Hill anymore. People go to Mission right. Hill, you know. There's not right. that many people from Southie anymore. They, that's where people go, right. you know. So it's, it's so just a... Let's, let's put it, it this way. So now that you've opened the door and you're starting to see, you know, you're putting pieces of the puzzle together and you're, you're seeing the bridge. I mean, you've really created a bridge in the sense. You, 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 you focus um, situations. And now you're seeing where it's leading you. I mean, do you see this leading to a, 
uh, kind of a sequel film that's maybe broader in the sense of not, yeah, now you start yeah, to do a documentary? I, I definitely. So I'm, the next film I'm working on, like we talked about, is, is a film called 24 to Heaven about a boxer, and it's about the human brain and, and so on and so forth. But I, I do have a couple other ones that I'm definitely working on that, um, that are going to touch upon some of the issues that are in the mission, no doubt about it. And I think there's this there's, – there's, it doesn't seem to me – I mean, maybe I haven't heard about it yet – but it doesn't seem to me there's a lot of film work being done on, on this type of stuff. So, um, and, and I am, uh, hey, if no one else wants to do it, I will, you know? Well, again, yeah, I think you've, you've really, there's amazing implications from this, you know, seminal work here to, to come over and say, okay, so that was then, what is now? And then you start to show just everything you were saying about the lack of um, authenticity because of the gentrification. I think that's a great, you know, future film. Yeah. Hey, you never know, right? Never know yeah, the story. Exactly. And you know, I just want one other thing about the legendary part. Take, and I, and I totally agree with you. Take the legend of the Boston Celtics for over 32 years, 16 world champions, NBA Seven, championship. 17. Was it 17? Is it okay. 17 or 16? Yep. Is it 16? Uh, I, last I, I thought heard, when they won uh, in 2006, I, I mean 2008, it was 17. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, yeah, with the yeah. new one. But, you yeah. know, during that um, 32 years, that um, our back was there. 16, yeah. that 16 championships. That's one every other year um, on an average. And you take... Well, first of all, there's, I don't think there's ever been a dynasty like it or before or after, even with the Yankees, I mean, in that concentrated amount of time. And what you've got, do you think you'll ever see that again in basketball? In the NBA? Yeah. No. No. Right. And because, so, because, because that dynasty was built in a totally different set of um, – it was a totally different economy. Of, of basketball right. back then, the the drafting system was. I mean, basketball. Like th- those teams were like families. They they played together for such a long time. Yeah. And yeah. and and now it would be impossible to develop something like that with with the way basketball is structured, just from an economic perspective and the drafting structure. It's a totally different way. So it would be for a team, let's say, to win ten NBA championships in a row. Um, and, you know, the Bulls did it. You know, this was 20 years ago when they did it. But mm-hmm. for a team to do that would be it, – it would be five times as miraculous if they did it now right. versus when the Celtics did it. So, I mean, you know, anything's possible, but it, it, w- it would be almost – it would be incredible. Well, I mean, incredible. and it wouldn't be even, even the fact that they created that kind of a dynasty in terms of record, but the legends – the legends that came out of it, and the legendary games, and you know the you know the the uh, the Russells and the Havlicek's and the Heinsons and the Cousies, and mm. uh, you know Bird, and I mean it, it's just legend. I mean it's just the stories run so deep, and you say yeah, yeah that family, you know that's what Auerbach um, engendered was he was family. You know, I, I don't know yeah, if you got no, talk beautiful. Stuff, it was we, beautiful, but yeah. I feel like a lot of professional sports teams in the fifties and sixties were were very family, were were yep. community and family type of situations. Where where now it's a, it's much more, you know, it's it's like working for a corporation. It's like being an accountant or being a, exactly a stock, exactly. It's like you're only you're Morgan. You know, if you're not producing, right. you're gone. 
Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's like you're right. You're aware. You. I mean, the, the Celtics. That, I mean, the Red Sox that won this World Series, except for you know a couple of players, uh, the Big Poppy and a few others, had nothing in common at all with just eight years ago. You know. I mean. Oh uh, yeah. Teams teams don't stay together for more than two years now. Th- three years. Yeah. They can't. Yeah. So yeah. I was rooting for a bunch of guys I didn't even know. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know. And, I know, it's and, crazy. And that, that is the sad part. It's crazy. Okay. Yeah. Well, well, listen, I think that mirrors always the, the fragmentation. I mean, the, 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 the roster of the Red Sox mirrors a Twitter feed. It changes daily. It's unstable. It's, <laughs> it, has no, it has no set of relations with people. It's, it's floating, and it's floating, you know, and, right. and we'd share anyway. But... It's symptomatic, though. I mean, when, when you think about that, though, and that's a great point. I haven't thought about that. It, it is symptomatic of a culture that where relationships don't matter, you know? What exactly. matters is money, and what matters is image, and what matters is yep. slogans. Um, yeah, so. You're right. And yeah. Then the, and the, you're right, and the latest hashtag and the latest yeah. uh, you movement. Know, it's I funny, think I don't even really that. watch... Um, any professional sports in Boston. Not that I don't like them, and, and, and it's nothing to do with, with my views about what I was just saying before. It's just that I just, I used to when I was a kid, I just am just doing other stuff now. I do like the Celtics, just I'm a huge basketball fan. Um, and I've been following them a little bit this year. Um, but it is really hard to keep track with, with what's going on because, you know, the, the teams aren't built. You know, it's new people every year, and, and it's just hard, it is hard to keep track. But, again, it's it's a... It's a sports tend to mirror, you know, the norms of a culture very, very perfectly usually, right? So I, I, mm-hmm. I think what you see happening in a, on a professional sport team is, is you, you can draw, you can abstract away from that and draw parallels to what's happening in a culture. And, and what you did here with this is, I mean, you, you, you concentrated on a certain aspect of, of, a, of a, a, a society or a subculture, but what you've opened up is universal truths. And, you know, I think that's fascinating and commendable. And, you know, the same thing could be said about music in the inner city. Well, I mean, you know, you know music's very similar. I mean, you know, you look at music. This is a great example. You look at music, which was absolutely a bottom-up phenomenon. I mean, you think of, like, the blues yep. bars in Chicago and yeah. Detroit, and, right. and, and, now right. it's, and now it's a totally top-down. It's American Idol and The Voice where young yep. kids go and try to be an NBC. And so it's the, the voice and American Idol, in terms of what they, um, let's say, represent, they're very similar to, let's say, the Boston Celtics or the New York Knicks. They, it's, a, it, it's, it's making creativity and disruption, because creativity is a, is a disruptive activity. Um, it right. makes it a, a top-down phenomena, where it's yep. no longer... The, the 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 dude in the guitar and the blues bar just playing and, and a guy from Motown happens to walk in oh man you know it's not like that anymore and the That's same right. way it's not and like it's, not... it's and it's in the same way it's not the kid in the basketball court shooting around and the scout who's been drinking all day happens to drive by and see, sees the kid in the on the court and pulls over to watch him these kids are monitored and tracked on YouTube right. and and face to the time they're nine years old on and and and, and the same with the singer you know. It's so it's right. it's just a and totally it, different it, culture. Well, it's, and it's not coming and, out of you know we touched on Gladwell. It's not coming out of adversity. 
Well, it, it might be. It might be in a way because a lot of these singers and basketball players that even come from, let's say, North Carolina, they're, they're coming from poor situations. But it's just it's a different vehicle to get there. It's, it's, it's not a right, it right. not right. a different vehicle. You know what I mean? So I think right. they didn't, see, adversity right. is always going to be there no matter what. It's just the way it is. It's, it's the way it's distributed through. Right. They didn't go. Right. Many of these the, kids the on some Right. Right. Many of these kids, the singers, and they, you're right. They haven't played the roadhouses. They haven't played the clubs. Oh, they haven't, God, no, no, no. They, they go they, on YouTube. Right. They so, play a couple of things, and they go on The Voice, and they get a contract, yep. and then whatever. So yep. it's just a very different. You know. Let's, what happened in the 60s is that a scout from Motown would walk into a bar in New York City and see you know, someone singing or someone, oh, we're going to sign you to a contract. You know what I mean? And now right. it's just a totally different thing, and it doesn't work like that. So like I said, you know, there's good and bad to everything. So of course you know, the, the top-down nature does do some good things for exposure and for the streamlining of the process and all types of things. But, I, but what my point is is that you lose a lot by, by adopting those models. You lose a lot. And the biggest thing you lose is the ability to, quote-unquote, rebel because the process is totally controlled from the point of power and privilege versus, you know, kind of the, the messy, distributed kind of network of just people. You know what I mean? So that's, that's the right. difference that you have now. Right. Well, yeah, it's no, always thanks, a pleasure. And it's on, always a, yeah. Yeah. And, and it's always, uh, I mean, you, you bring the show to a, you know, such a great uh, uh, intellectual, holistic level. I mean, on, on all levels. And someday maybe we, we get to, to convince you to do the move over into the ramifications with you. But someday maybe we talk about the, uh, the explosion of comedy in the seventies and eighties in Boston and where that, I mean, now somebody's already done a, a, a documentary called When Stand-Up Stood Out, which, you know, concentrated on guys like Stephen Wright and Lenny and all of those guys. But, yeah. you know, what I'd love to see someday is how did it all happen? How did that explosion occur? Where did those cats come from, you know? Yeah. What kind of in situation? So you're on to something fantastic. That sounds like a Gladwell book uh, waiting to happen, the outliers. Yeah, really? Like that, you know? <laughs> the yeah. outliers, exactly, the yeah. comedy outliers. Brian, yeah. thank you so much, and let's do it again. Yeah, and then just, just to let the listeners know, April 2nd, 6 p.m. at Wentworth, we're doing uh, another showing of the mission. So um, that's it. Yeah, th- thanks a lot for having me, Tom. Look forward to talking to you again. All right. Okay, okay bye. Brian. Peace. All right, bye. And that does it for another uh, episode. And that was such a Hey, boys and girls. Sunday it's night. Saturday in Beantown. Uh, and you know what Saturday means. <laughs> Press the wrong button, but here we go. Thanks again, audience, and uh, we'll see you next time.